Hello there. Welcome to the second episode of the System Science in Public Health podcast series. I'm your host, Petra Meyer. I'm Professor of Public Health at the MRC, CSO, Social and Public Health Sciences Unit at the University of Glasgow. I'm also a director of the CIFA Consortium. CIFA is a collaboration between seven universities and three government partners that aims to develop system science evidence to support health and well-being in all policies. In this podcast series, I'm speaking to scientists, policymakers and practitioners who work in this space. Joining us via Zoom today is Professor Brian Castellani. Brian is a professor of sociology at Durham University, where he is one of the leads for the Health and Social Theory Research Group. He's also a co-investigator for the Centre for the Study of Complexity Across the Nexus, CCAM. His research focuses on advancing the tools of social complexity theory and computational social science for the study of public health questions. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you, Brian. Let me jump straight in. Especially since COVID-19 and global warming, we see and hear all the time now through social media, the telly and the news, words like complexity and complex systems and modeling. How should people make sense of these terms? And what is systems thinking and the complexity sciences all about? Yeah, sure. So I think the key here is to understand this idea that um, as humans, we live in systems. And it's a different way of thinking that has definitely caught hold right now in public health. And um, certainly we see it with COVID-19, where people are seeing these models that are being variously built um, to understand the disease transmission and um, how do we go in and out of lockdown and how do we uh, you know, basically move on with our lives. And uh, an easy example of that is vaccination. So when we talk about complexity, we're talking about the way in which people are interconnected and interdependent upon one another. And then the way in which uh, the system emerges out of those interactions. So something like vaccination, uh, you know, people will say, well, I don't particularly see the need to get vaccinated because um, either I'm young and healthy or um, I'm not around a lot of people and I don't see the need or I'm just willing to give it a go and, you know, this is my own life. But then we explain from a systems perspective that actually uh, the extent to which a disease continues to travel through a population um, as that disease is transmitted from one person to the next, unless you do something like vaccination or some other type of um, behavioral remedy that the disease continues to spread and then moves its way into vulnerable populations like the elderly or people who are at health risks or people who um, work daily that put themselves at risk um, to provide our groceries, to provide our healthcare and so forth. So that idea of getting people to see that they live in systems has been a challenge. And I think for the first time, um, probably for a lot of people, they're realizing that they actually do live uh, in a larger uh, context. And even at a global level now, we're seeing that where people are realizing that what happens in one country um, impacts um, the other country in terms of how, how they survive and, and, and do um, you know, public health in relationship to each other. So it's, it's that idea around these words of interdependence, uh, systems are more than the sum of their parts and systems are what we live in and um, we actually have an impact on those systems and it's sort of getting people to start to think that way. 
how did you end up in this area of research and what excites you most about working in system science? I think building off the question uh, that you first asked, this idea of what does it mean to think about these terms? I started off as a clinical psychologist and I worked for 10 years in healthcare. And what I primarily was involved in was uh, inpatient addiction treatment. And uh, at one year post-treatment, we found that we had about 50% of our patients, uh, people that we were working with, uh, returned to treatment, and we had about 80% return to their drug of use. And I thought that's probably not particularly good um, outcomes. And as I began to research into it with my colleagues, we started seeing that it was the uh, worlds that these uh, people were returning to. Um, in particular, we saw that at six months post-treatment, they, they had um, housing instability, employment instability, and income instability. And so in the face of that instability, they turned eventually to a coping mechanism that they ultimately relied on, which was their addiction, their drug. And then they would return to the addiction. But then the once in treatment, it was seen from a strictly very reductionist psychological view. You know, it was the, the return to the drug was a function of their personality or not working their care plan the way they should have. And, and not to discount that because that's obviously important, but they weren't paying attention to the larger social context in which these people were returning to and how that, that instability and those related inequalities that had to go with their lives were ultimately about impacting them. And, and then I started from there getting interested in reading more about systems research and systems theory, and then uh, different um, pieces of research started coming out, like Christakis and Fowler's work on obesity networks and showing how um, weight gain and weight loss and eating behaviors and so forth were a product of the social networks that people lived in. And then widening that, widening that out, realizing even if you went back to the fundamental tenets of like Alcoholics Anonymous, it was change the places, persons, change the people, places, and things that you're around. And I thought, wow, even AA has a systems view. So it led me to go back to sociology. I did a degree in sociology and health sociology and public health. But even there, I found that um, while I had a nice theoretical frame for thinking about systems, um, which was quite brilliant, I still was lacking in the methods. And then that took me into the complexity sciences and spent a number of years learning about agent-based modeling and networks and artificial intelligence and all those sorts of things that we hear about today. Um, um, but it was that slow journey of trying to get to a, a more complete and more thoughtful, nuanced understanding of how to not just treat people, but how to prevent, right? So in public health, we think right a lot about primary prevention, and that ultimately takes you to thinking about systems. I think you collaborate closely with an applied mathematics colleague. How did this collaboration come about and how easy has it been to do interdisciplinary research in this field? Yeah, I think um, in terms of interdisciplinary work, um, one of the challenges is to take the time to engage one another and to take the time to learn how to speak different vocabularies. And I think coming from um, a, an applied background where I did work in healthcare, you have to work across disciplines. You're working with everybody, nurses, social workers, psychiatrists, primary care physicians, um, public health workers, um, 
all different types of social services and you're doing research and you're translating that research into practice and thinking through those things. And it also goes back to your other question in terms of what excites me most right now is I think there's this huge applied turn in the complexity sciences and in system science and systems thinking where these ideas are now getting out um, and, and finding real practical value uh, in terms of helping us to sort of think through things better. And that's where I think the interdisciplinary um, aspects of uh, systems thinking are, are really important because um, I, I remember seeing a study that most of the major innovations taking place today aren't the old model of you know Einstein or Freud or somebody sitting around and thinking through as an individual an idea that you know the big ideas that are happening now take place in teams and across disciplines. And you know, if you think about even COVID, which we've been talking about, it's it's an environmental issue, it's a um, global health problem issue, it's a behavioral issue, right? It crosses the disciplines from psychology and medicine to to public health and economics. You know, how do you sustain the economy while you treat a pandemic? So all these sorts of complex interlinkages, and I think working with somebody in maths and engineering sciences was uh, and remains uh, an exciting way because it pushes you to see in ways you normally don't see, to think in ways you normally don't think. And ultimately, I think it, you, you land in a better place as far as um, solving issues. Uh, the one last thing I'll say about that too is not just collaboration with other academics, but collaboration with people uh, in the public domain, working with, with public stakeholders and um, engaging them and finding out what are the questions they have and, and how does that change the research that we do so that we're actually answering the, uh, the types of questions that they're struggling with. So it's that engagement across all those different uh, domains. In your work, have you encountered any challenges in this interdisciplinary research uh, scene? And what do you think would make it easier if you have? Yeah, as far as challenges, I think the very excitement of of interdisciplinary work is is sort of at the same time the challenge that comes with interdisciplinary work is that um, you have to work with people that uh, are willing to take the risk of demonstrating that they don't know something um, which is a challenge for all of us we we don't generally like to be in a position of not knowing um, it creates anxiety and and um, puts us in a place where we think, well, you know, geez, it'd be much easier if I just stuck with what I know. So I've found that um, figuring out ways to architecture or architect or engineer spaces where people can uh, take that risk and be vulnerable and recognize that um, I don't really know everything. And so I'm, I need to work with you or this person to, to get to the place that I wanna get. And so that becomes a challenge um, because again, right, we, we tend not to want to sit in that space too long, but what's, where, where you get past that challenge is when you start to really rely on each other and realize um, where you can contribute to the team and how you can um, you know, bring the particular set of things you do that you do well to that team. And, and so that's, that's probably been the biggest challenge uh, getting around that. And then, the other challenge, I think, is translating that for policy and into the public domain. 
um, and, and making that relevant uh, for the people that you're um, trying to help. And again, that, that likewise, that sort of um, getting into that space where you, you think in, in ways that you're not trained to, you know, as academics, we're trained to think in certain ways. And um, those types of perspectives, say, for example, needing short-term results, needing something immediately changes the nature of the research you do. So you, it's this sort of give and take. Um, and I think COVID has been an example of that where answers were needed quickly. Um, how do you con uh, contrast that with maybe doing slower science and the importance of slower science? So that give and take, I think, has been a real challenge in learning how to do that well. I see this now happening in the modeling community around COVID is a number of papers are starting to come out now where people are saying, how did we deal with those challenges and what could we do differently next time round to, to address them better? I've often wondered about one thing. What do you think systems modeling can really offer public health that is currently missing? And how can we be sure that taking a systems approach is making a difference? Yeah, that's a hard question. Um, first of all, I don't think anything is um, the magic bullet, right? I don't think anything just solves everything. So I would be leery or weary of anybody that started off by saying, this is the best thing since sliced bread and, you know, sit back and we've got it covered. Um, so I'm not, I don't by any means think that systems thinking is the only way to solve things. Having said that though, I think that what systems modeling, what systems thinking offers in very real ways is a, a, um, a good uh, pathway into causality. That uh, we, we, social life is, and, and public health life, it's probabilistic. Um, it's not deterministic. Um, it's not as simple as this causes this. You know, smoking causes cancer. It's not as simple as that. It's, it's a much more complex relationship between um, the factors that impact our lives, these social determinants, and then the health consequences. For some people, smoking may cause um, increased um, heart disease. For others, it might lead to, along with other conditions, diabetes or all sorts of issues that um, people can suffer from. And so the idea of thinking about multiple causal pathways, and that's actually some of the research that we did on this idea of allostatic load, which has to do with a biological measure of the wear and tear that stress has on the body. And it's not just simple enough to say, oh, if you experience inequalities or, or live in impoverished conditions that this disease will then follow, right? We, people respond differently based on um, how they live their lives, their genetic composition, um, you know, their, their, their um, the work they do and, and so forth. So systems modeling, I think, gives us a better approach to causality by helping us think about um, the conditions that people sit in, that these things interact and are interconnected and, and there's no simple explanation. And then the outcome as well is not a singular outcome. And things differ for people based on different configurations or combinations of factors. I know it sounds complex, but, but you can still simplify those ideas um, and think through them. Um, and there are methods and techniques for doing that. Uh, but that still sort of honor the fact that um, most of the lives that we live and the things that we experience are not a simple A causes B type of uh, situation, and therefore, you know, C is the outcome. In explanatory terms, 
how well do you think should a model represent a system? And if I may follow up, how should human agency be represented in a model? Yeah, so um, representation. I think what, first of all, in terms of the model, when we're thinking about thinking about representation from a complexity perspective, it really has to do with what are the nature of the questions being asked? Um, and what is, the, what is the model's purpose? So for example, with COVID-19, the models we were building were attempting to understand how the disease as it spread was impacting hospital admissions. Um, so for us, the uh, model was, had a very specific goal, which was to, to sort of understand how that was happening. Um, as far as representation goes, it, it wasn't so much that the model needed to accurately represent reality um, to the, you know, the microscopic level. It was more that it had to find what are the key trends and how do those trends differ across different um, localities. So building an accurate model in the sense that it has everything in it uh, is 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 impossible um you know the that's that expression that the um the map is not the territory a one-to-one -one map that represents the territory it's attempting to map is basically useless so models have to think about representation in terms of what are they trying to solve for the user and how well are they doing that which then i think goes um to the other part of the question petra which is uh you need more than one model so when it comes to representation, because models will answer specific questions and because no one model can ever truly represent such complexity, the better approach is to have multiple models um, and to approach the problem from multiple levels. And that modeling includes the qualitative as well. Um, I think we underestimate often the importance of talking to people and getting stories and that all models provide narratives and so it's important to, to use the qualitative aspects of, um, of systems modeling as well. One of the techniques that we use, for example, is called participatory systems mapping, where you sit down with people and ask them, how do they understand the systems they work in? This could be healthcare providers, uh, local um, citizen activist groups, your everyday end user for things, you know, people who access uh, public health services, and, and engaging in um, an understanding with people, how do they understand the systems they live in? So all that different type of modeling, I think, is important put in combination and together. Then the, the issue of agency that you asked is also extremely important. Modeling oftentimes can be very macroscopic. So it, it can focus on how, you know, like in network science, for example, how do these big uh, complex networks like the internet work and move, forgetting that really there are real human beings in there. There are groups, there's group dynamics, there's the psychology of everyday life. We see this in politics now, right? Politics of public health, where um, you know people's political positions, political values uh, can strongly influence whether or not they get the vaccination, whether or not they wear their masks, whether or not they participate in social distancing. This differs as a function of people's age, right? And geographical location and so forth. So uh, agency is an extremely important uh, part. Um, and one way to deal with that, obviously, is we aggregate up because we can't, we don't necessarily study 
each individual in the model. Uh, but certainly uh, thinking about agency and, and looking for trends and uh, common trends uh, across time that fit with different groups, that gives us a, a better hand at how um, what people are doing at the microscopic level impacts what's happening at the macroscopic level. Given what you just said, I suspect you may not like this next question very much, but if you could only choose one single method for complexity-informed research, what would it be and why? Well, um, actually, I don't hate that question too much. <laughs> um, because at the end of the day, I guess we all have our biases. Um, so for me, I would say ultimately it's a case-based perspective. The reason I say that, so what is a case-based perspective? Uh, a case-based perspective uh, treats, uh, looks for configurations of factors. So rather than studying an individual variable like ethnicity or age or gender um, or education, we would be looking at how those factors go together to create different combinations or configurations. Uh, intersectionality theory would be an example of looking at the way in which people are positioned at the intersection of multiple forms of oppression or inequality or disadvantage. So case-based perspective is looking at cases. And, and when I teach this to students, I say this all the time is in medicine and in healthcare, ultimately it is at the end of the day about cases. If you go back to early 1900s and look through like the Journal of the American Medical Association or, or the Lancet or different things, and you'll see them talking about cases. Consider the following case. These set number of symptoms were presented. So what does that mean? They're not looking at variables. And um, the variables are, are part of a description of a case. So I think the case-based perspective is, in my opinion, probably the most powerful approach uh, because you are it's a way to handle the complexity up front in terms of social determinants. You can think about, rather than worrying about trying to control for factors, you're looking at how they combine. Um, again, like the allostatic load would be different, different biomarkers or different combination of biomarkers and how that leads to different health outcomes based on profiles. Um, the case-based perspective then on the other end allows you to look at multiple trends and different outcomes. So um, it, it, it simplifies things in a way because you can, at the end of the day, rather than going, well, geez, these are a lot of different complex factors. No, this, let's look at this person, this group of people living over here uh, in this part of town. So research we're doing now on outdoor air pollution and its impact on cognitive and brain health across time. You know, if you're living in this part of town and you're breathing this type of air, uh, how does that impact across time differ from say living somewhere else in town where you're not exposed to that type of uh, negative uh, air quality. And so the case-based perspective allows that. What it also does then by situating yourself at that level of thinking about cases and how they cluster and group and evolve, you can use any method pretty much in, in service of that. You can use agent-based modeling, you can use network science, you can use regression and basic statistics. You can use qualitative analysis, historical data. So it, in, in a way, um, it does that. And if that sounds odd to the listener, you know, so where, does, where do I see that in my real world? That's the basis for Google. That's the basis for your smartphone. 
that's the basis for following us. You know, when we, when we type something in Google, when we go to Amazon and we buy something, we're creating a profile, right? And the machine is saying, well, someone like Brian buys these sneakers or likes this type of chocolate. Though, well, we know that people that are similar in profile across time and buying purchasing behaviors, well, they probably also like this chocolate or they might like this sneaker. And so, you know, you introduce that. So actually we live in a world of case-based modeling today. And it, it, it's, it does in many ways frame um, how, how we sort of think about the uh, complexity of the world that we're situated in. And so I think now you see a shift where in public health and in other areas, they're starting to pick up on this approach as well. Following on from what you said, so how would you say you see the relationship between more qualitative systems thinking approaches and computational modeling? Yeah, excellent question. Um, in the sense that I think that for a long time, we've sort of undervalued the qualitative complexity component. Um, and certainly we're in an era right now, and this also goes back to, I think one of the challenges too of doing interdisciplinary work is we're in an era now where computational science dominates. And uh, this sense of you know, big data is the, is, is the only way to go. Um, but uh, one of my colleagues wrote a really excellent um, article uh, in the journal Complexity uh, saying big data versus uh, useful, da useful data or useful information. And I think that's where the qualitative component comes in. Another one is um, you know, Google can get you a million hits for your search, but a librarian can get you the right answer. You know, it's this idea that talking and interacting with people and, and observing, you know, people in the real world and, and having that relationship with people and communities and groups and organizations is, is massively important. And the history of complexity has a lot of those methods like uh, Peter Checklin's soft methodology where he realized you can't just build a computer model of an organization. It has, you have to have these softer methods that recognize uh, that again, we live in a probabilistic world and things are fuzzy. That's what I would mean by soft is that you sort of fuzzify the modeling that you built because it, it doesn't have the accuracy that say uh, the hard sciences would have um, studying something. So I think the way you do that is uh, there's an excellent article in a journal called the Journal of Artificial Societies and Social Simulation uh, where this cultural anthropologist, he studies, um, I think it's uh, intravenous drug users and the transmission of tuberculosis. And the title of the paper is uh, My Kingdom for a Function. And it was him working as an anthropologist translating uh, ethnographic work that he was doing with homeless people uh, who were uh, dealing with drug addiction and tuberculosis transmission. And how do you put that into an agent-based model? How do you work with the agent-based modelers to translate that into that model to then explore different types of treatment solutions. And I think that's where computational modeling can come back and say, one of the strengths of a lot of the, the modeling that I do, for example, is there's the safety of the simulated environment where you can try out different interventions. What if we do this? What if we do that? What kind of consequence does that lead to? But then again, it ultimately has to be grounded in real empirical data and it has to be brought back to the real world that it's attempting to understand. And again, that only comes through these types of engagements with stakeholders, um, as well as um, you know, working across academics in terms of different methods. That was excellent. Really interesting stuff. Um, 
looking forward to seeing that. Are there any final things that you would want to say or share? I think just that I think we're living in a world now where, right, where we see that um, the problems we're up against, they require us to, to transform our way of, of responding to them. And I think, again, without arguing that systems thinking and complex systems thinking is the only answer, it certainly provides a, um, the type of imagination that I think we need today. There was a very famous American sociologist by the name of C. Wright Mills. And he wrote this very small book called The Sociological Imagination. And I, if I ever get time one day, I'd like to sit down and write a book called like The Complexity Imagination because C. Wright Mills said, we suffer troubles and problems on our own and we feel as if they're only our own. Um, but then we realize that other people suffer them as well. And that leads to corrective collective action where, where we change and transform the worlds we're living in. And I think that today we see that is the type of transformations that we need to make in public health, uh, the environment, um, and how, how we respond to that through policy and politics and culture and um, the economy and so forth. It requires us to become much more aware of how deeply interdependent we are with not just each other, but the planet we're living on. Um, and I think that a complexity imagination uh, has the capacity to, to, to bring that type of um, uh, thinking to people that I think we desperately need um, to embrace. Thank you very much. That's great. If you'd like to read more about Brian's work, you can find his profile on the Durham University website. If you'd like to find out more about Cypher, or you want to subscribe to future episodes of this podcast, go to cypher.ac.uk. Cypher is spelled with an S for sugar. You can also find out more about the work of the Social and Public Health Sciences Unit on our University of Glasgow website. Thank you for listening to our second episode, and I hope you'll join us next time. Until then, goodbye.